sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love, the government of the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and we're changing things up because today I'm joined by Michael Baranowski, a, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to doing the show with you again. It's been, we, we did one a little while ago together, and I always appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, because the last time it was our it was our three person show with Kristen. So now we get to uh-huh. uh, you know <laughs> it'll just be the uh, the two of us. Now I, I do want to for listeners kind of take you through what we're gonna we're gonna get through, and anything we don't get to, of course, is going to be coming in our bonus show, uh, right? So for supporters, you have the opportunity to have access to the bonus show. So just remember, if we don't get to it in the main show. Uh, supporters are going to have access to that in the bonus show. So uh, what Mike and I are going to start off with, we're going to be talking again about uh, what the recent developments on the debt, uh, specifically what had happened uh, just a couple of days ago and, and yesterday. Uh, we're also going to move forward and we're going to be chatting about the Facebook whistleblower and kind of what's been happening there and the Wall Street Journal's report on Instagram, uh, really just kind of social media and politics right there. Uh, we're going to move forward and take a look at another big issue this day. In this case, uh, U.S. District Court Robert Pittman uh, striking down or granting an injunction, I should say, uh, against Texas uh, Senate Bill 8 uh, on abortion. Then we're going to move forward and talk about the release of the Pandora Papers uh, this moment. We're going to especially talk about North Dakota in that case. Uh, And then we're going to move forward and we're going to be talking about Taiwan and China. Uh, And then we're going to move on, if we have time, uh, to getting into the Supreme Court's brief ruling on D.C. having uh, voting rights in the House of Representatives. Uh, We're going to be talking about the uh, Idaho lieutenant governor and what she's been doing, why the governor's in a way. Uh, We're also going to be taking a look at a busy Supreme Court season and some more. So, again, anything we don't get to on the main show, you'll have an opportunity to listen to on the Politics Guys bonus show. But before we get into the Politics Guys, show we're going to pause for a brief word from our sponsor well mike welcome back uh it's always going to be fun now i know it's a little bit awkward in one way i know that you and jay i mean you really kind of tackled the debt ceiling thing uh and and for listeners right your takeaway point was it's time to raise it It was like a a kajillion dollars right wasn't that what you (laughs) yeah like a dude decajillion some wild number (laughs) (laughs) i just like that right we just need to raise it to this this big amount now it sounds like schumer and mcconnell did not take your uh your advice i don't know what it is about being an academic but nobody ever pays attention to us so you know i don't know uh they didn't they didn't raise it to uh, a kajillion instead uh this past Thursday, Schumer and McConnell independently announced and then was able to get past uh, uh, filibuster terms with the help of 11 Republicans to raise uh, the debt limit. And instead of doing it to a specific date, uh, they they attached an amount of money, specifically $480 billion. The Treasury Department estimates this week that that is going to extend uh, the drop deadline to December 3rd of this year. Or another way of looking at it, uh, the current national debt is 28.4 trillion. This is going to allow it to rise to 28.4 or 28.8 trillion. Um, and as a result, as we kind of see uh, the market rallied. Now, to be clear, although McConnell was clearly the driving force behind this, not all Republicans were happy about it. And McConnell has also made it clear, Mike, that this is just an opportunity for Democrats to pass a longer solution, in his view, under reconciliation. As McConnell put it earlier this week, quote, 
we will allow Democrats to use normal procedures to pass an emergency debt limit extension at a fixed dollar amount to cover current spending levels into December. However, he goes on, this is just going to moot Democrats' excuses about the time crunch they created and give the unified Democratic government more than enough time to pass standalone debt limit legislation through reconciliation, end quote. So Democrats have not wanted to go through that reconciliation process. They still clearly don't want to go through that process, as, again, you and Jay have talked about that. Uh, so I know you've, got, you've talked about this. But has any of your feelings on this changed? On the basis of what, what's happened uh, yesterday uh, with the 11 additional votes and, and McConnell pushing this through, let's start there. Not really. It seems to me that Mitch McConnell did more or less what I would expect him to do. I think initially I was surprised that the uh, th- that the filibuster was defeated. But given the fact that the rec- that doing this for reconciliation is going to take longer and the fact that the markets really hate the idea of this even being a thing, it seems like sort of the least that the congressional or sorry, that Senate Republicans could do. And I think that's exactly what Mitch McConnell wants to do is have the fewest Republican fingerprints on this thing without, you know, destroying the destroying the economy. And that that to me is is what happened. Uh, you know, you think, are, gotta, are we just going to be back to this again on, you know, at the end of November? I mean, do you do you think that this is going to give Democrats the space to, to do the reconciliation process? Or do you think Democrats are just going to wait till the end moment again and see if McConnell will once again give him a, a give him an out? I think this is this is as much of an out as Democrats are, are likely to get. You know, to me, it was interesting looking at those 11 Republicans who voted to invoke clo- invoke cloture on this. I looked at the names and what I, what I realized was that basically it was the majority of the Republican Senate leadership. You got McConnell, Thune, Grasso and Blunt, but but not Ernst or Scott. Two members of the GOP Senate caucus who are retiring, Shelby and Portman, uh, and Blunt's also retiring, though he's in he's in leadership. And then four of what I guess you could call the most moderate Senate Republicans, Collins, Murkowski, uh, Capito, and, and Rounds. And so that, to me, that's pretty much it. If push comes to shove, you maybe get uh, a Romney and one or two more on board that. But but I, you know, I don't really think, I think that's pretty much as far as the Senate Republicans are willing to go. And they want, they want Democrats to own this debt ceiling increase. And I think that's, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, again, this has happened before. As a matter of fact, it's 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 funny. I, I took a look back as you guys had talked about it, and this is something that I know that Jay had had uh, chatted about a little bit too. But it's not as if uh, Democrats haven't voted against the debt ceiling limit. As a matter of fact, uh, Joe Biden himself uh, did that, arguing under uh, George W. Bush that he wasn't going to do it. It was no more spending, right? Too much spending under uh, George W. Bush. Um, I know that a lot of time is kind of spent on the haggling between Republicans and Democrats, but I mean, it seems like this is one of those things that we study. I mean, so for example, I I think very much about uh, the idea of issue and position taking and trying of staking your position out. It feels like one of these problems that will continue to be a problem, but can't really have a solution because everybody likes being able to use it when they're in the in the proper circumstance. Well, so, well, I, I I agree in part, but I will say that this is generally speaking something that Republicans do. For the most part, it's Republicans in the Senate who or in, or in you know in the House, depending on the partisan control, who want to use the debt ceiling as a for political leverage, and uh, you know it also is interesting to me that 
essentially no other country in the world has a debt ceiling like this. Uh, according to uh, research I did, the, the Council of Foreign Relations says that the only other major Western country with anything like this is Denmark. But theirs is set so high relative to their debt that, that basically breaching it is not even an issue. So we've set up a system where we have to periodically say, well, will the United States government agree to honor its debts, which is which is crazy. Of course, the United States government is going to honor its debts. And the fact that we've built in this structural mechanism to call this into question, to allow a party to use this as leverage is, I think, is just unconscionable. Well, it's weird. In a matter of fact, it emerges out of uh, World War II. I don't know if you knew that. Um, the, the, the the structure in which we currently do it, where we uh, bifurcate the two, uh, starts in 1939 um, when Congress eventually removes the way that they separate spending from uh, uh, debt. And as a result, you then get a general restriction on debt in a way that you don't on spending. Um, and, and that's the beginning of what we think of as being the debt uh, limit or the debt ceiling. Uh, and, and I don't know if just for those of us who are curious, the original debt limit, right? So that ceiling was $45 billion <laughs> back in 1939. But does that make sense to you, Trey? I oh, mean, no. I would just, it's always interesting to know where it comes from. I, I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, I, I mean in, in the case here, I don't want to say that it's an idea. I mean, what I think is problematic here, and it's something that I've talked uh, about before, is, is that by t- – Taking the two apart, you seemingly can make arguments. And again, I mean, this is one. As a matter of fact, I remember this. This happened uh, in uh, Ohio to Portman when Democrats ran against him when he voted for increasing the debt ceiling and the, you know, all the scary music. But really, increasing the debt limit is just about, as you had noted, paying the bills you've already agreed that you're going to spend money on. By separating the two, I think we actually take the pain away from having. S- having actual spending and having to think about the ramifications of spending. I know this is an issue where, uh, you know, Ken and I often disagree and, you know, we don't talk about this as much, but I'm, I'm more fiscally conservative than Ken, but that doesn't take much to be more fiscally conservative than Ken. Uh, You know, that's kind of, that's a pretty low bar to step over. So I, you know, we've never had a chance to talk about it. So I don't know where, where do you, where do you fall on that idea? Because again, if you tied those back together, that would undoubtedly probably make spending money a little bit harder. Um, I don't know that it would. I I don't know that it would, but I I think that just as a matter of good public policy, there's a reason why almost no other country in the world has anything like this. And generally speaking, I think when literally everyone else is doing one thing and you're doing something else like this or like, for instance, having some sort of system of universal health care, you might want to at least Take a pause, take a beat, and look at yourself, as opposed to saying, well, clearly every other country in the world has this wrong, and we're the only ones with the right answer. I, that, that to me, is an indication that we need to take a look that sometimes American exceptionalism is not a good thing. Sometimes it is, but in this case, I think it clearly isn't. The markets have clearly indicated that it's, that it's not. They don't like this. And so, to me, this is an example of putting, uh, I guess you'd call it electoral optics before the public good, you know, and, and I agree and, with and that, that, on that much. Yeah. I, I, agree, I agree, Mike. And here's what I've often wondered, and, and maybe this is a way we can kind of bring this in a slightly different direction than you guys did uh, uh, last week and the week before. 
And that is, so in a system like ours, right? So uh, there's a famous work by a, uh, a researcher called David Mayhew. I know you're familiar with that, uh, who argues that what, in, what individual congresspersons are going to do is about getting reelected and all their activities. And he, he thinks there's kind of three big activities, but whatever. Point being for listeners is, you know, what your activities are all going to involve is getting reelected, not necessarily what you'd think of as being the best governing. So if, if that thesis is correct, and I think for most of us in academia, we think that there we're somewhere in that vein of Mayhew. How how can you get out of the cycle of where something like this, where it's really effective? I mean, this 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 is this is really effective when you are the party looking forward to the midterm elections. It, it always will be. So you don't want to get rid of it, even though it's probably everybody on some level recognizes it's a disastrous idea. In what ways can we kind of try to get around those institutional problems to get to better governing? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the answer is, you know, people who are more concerned with the public good than they are with being reelected. And good luck with that. There there are maybe a handful. <laughs> yeah. Our system rewards uh, getting reelected above all and, and the sort of people who put their personal political stakes above the stakes for the country, whether it's this or health care or or climate change or a million other things that, you know, or things that, you know, that that, that conservatives take issue with maybe rightly. Uh, like, for instance, I think there are. There's a reasonable case to be made that federal spending as a percentage of GDP, which I think is probably, you know, the the best way to look at it fairly, is out of control because we're not fighting Hitler and, and, the, and the Axis powers in World War II. But you take a look at the sort of U-shaped curve of that. It hasn't been this high since World War II. And, and, and you know, I don't necessarily agree with, well, you in the sense that <laughs> Fair. it's that much as a problem because when i look at for instance debt as a or debt payments or interest payments as a percent of gdp that's actually down from the mid 80s and the early 90s or when i look at interest rates you know i mean there's been a spike lately in say consumer price but when i look at the willingness of of creditors around the world to lend the united states money at incredibly low rates that hasn't changed at all so while i do think that that you and other fiscal conservatives are right that at some point we reach a point where we can't borrow anymore at a decent interest rate but to me, if I'm a market-oriented person, which which I pretty much you know am, I, I would say, well, let's let the market decide when that happens. And clearly, international financial markets say the safest bet in the world is uh, investing in the United States government. And so we don't see any sign of that changing. And so for now, we're good, though. I, I do agree with you that there's some point at some trillions of dollars number where we're not good. But I don't, I don't think we're at that point. I think we could pass the entirety of the $3.5 trillion package, which I know won't happen. It's one of my liberal pipe dreams. And and, and, <laughs> I, and another one on top of that, and we would be okay. But uh, that, that's kind of where I'm at with this. I understand. I, mean, I think the part where we're going to have some disagreement is to say, I don't think you want to get to the point where you see major market indicators, because I think when you look at that comparatively, historically, what you see is oftentimes by the time you have that specific tipping point, you've gone too far. Um, or I shouldn't mean you're, you're at a point where it's hard to, to bring it back. So I think for many of us who kind of fall on that side, 
Um, I agree with you. I don't think we have yet hit that point, but maybe I'm particularly a little more nervous about it in one way, because while I recognize that we don't have those indicators, oftentimes when you look at historic examples, once you start seeing those indicators, it's almost too late, especially when you have a system that's difficult to change. You know, you don't you don't change policy rapidly in that sense. Now, yeah. where I where I will give uh, a, a lot, I think um, uh, uh, the left a lot of credit is when you take a look at the total public de- outstanding debt, you know, a, a ton of it has happened in the last few years. And, and part of that hap- has happened under the, the Republican watch. And the reason for that is, is, is there not, I mean, we have to think about spending, but we also have to think about taxing on the other hand. And, uh, you know, so if you really are concerned about debt, that means you can't simultaneously keep spending at certain levels and then decrease tax revenue. <laughs> and so I'm always willing to kind of give that on the other side as well. But well, to give the right, I'll I'll go right back on on that. Then I'll to give the right some credit. You know, when when the Republicans passed the 1.5 trillion dollar tax cut, they did not they could not have known that a few years later there would be a worldwide pandemic that we would you know we would basically need to spend trillions of dollars to support the economy through. And you know that one two punch. You take a look at one of my favorite websites in the entire world is the St. Louis Fed's economic research site, which is just full with charts and graphs and fun stuff for wonky people like that. And you take a look at that, you know, that federal debt and there's that huge to shoot just like up, not even like a sky, like a ski, ski, ski slope. No, it's, 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 it's the Empire State Building. It's just like a wall. <laughs> exactly. And so I, that's why, in a way, I'm not terrifically concerned, but I, you know, I wanted to talk about that point you made about the indicators, because you're right, sometimes those things can be lagging indicators. But I'll also point out that one of the most common indicators we use is the uh, is the interest rate on 10-year treasuries. And of course, those are investors who are looking, well, that far out into the future. And so maybe that is, I would argue, a slightly less lagging indicator than many, which is not to disagree with your point entirely, but just to say that I think that's maybe a little less so than something like, say, looking at the housing market for, you know, if the, in the previous recession, that being uh, that being pretty much a lagging indicator and some other things like that. That's a that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Um, now, you know, the last piece here that I wanted to kind of talk about on this, uh, Mike, is to think about the fact, right, we still do and it, we don't want to spend too much time. We still do have, of course, two and you pointed out two big spending hopes coming from the Biden administration and from uh, but to get them through, they're going to need reconciliation. But we only have one more reconciliation to go. Do you think the fact that we've now extended this, but McConnell's put the stamp on it, changes any of the calculus on that, makes it a little bit more difficult since we're going to need to see that coming via a singular reconciliation process? I don't think so, because as I understand that there's a way to work the to work the Senate rules where they can get two reconciliation bills before the end of the year. So I don't really no, I don't really think that's a that's a problem. And and if they need to massage the, the process in, in the end, I think they'll have the votes to, to do that sort of thing, as opposed to just something more radical, like doing away with the filibuster, which which I don't which I don't think will happen. You know, and and, and I got to say, speaking of radical, that, that idea that I'm sure you've heard time and 
for a few times when, when this comes up is that idea of minting a, a one trillion dollar platinum coin as sort of a solution to the debt ceiling thing. And I kind of there's a certain appeal to that, as some listeners may know. Uh, under legislation Congress passed most recently in 2001, the Treasury Department, the Treasury Secretary, can basically authorize the minting of a platinum coin at any value without congressional approval. And so there's nothing uh, that law, as if read literally, means that, you know, Janet Yellen could say, here, here's a trillion dollar coin and we're just going to draw on that. And I think I've seen some fanciful and interesting designs, that sort of thing. Uh, and that's one way out of it. But uh, somehow I don't think Janet Yellen is going to uh, uh, take that, take that no, option. No, I mean, I think uh, the, the amount of blowback that that would create in the uh, confidence uh, w- w- <laughs> yeah, but it is interesting where people will go when they think here's the way, but, uh, yeah. but I think we should probably, no, yeah. yeah. You know, I was say before we, I think in, in terms of how, how this will play out, I am uh, with a high degree of, of confidence. I think this, this gets taken care of and we get the, uh, what, wait, 1 trillion, half a, half a trillion dollars in new spending infrastructure bill. And we get around $2 trillion in the, in the other, in the other bill before the end of, before the end of the year. I, I would Two. be extremely surprised if those three things didn't happen. Yeah. That's so, that it, it's, it's, it's fun that you mentioned that because I had a bunch of students ask me about that, and I had put it at 1.8. So we're, I mean, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, we're close. I mean, Manchin has indicated a little more flexibility. So, but yeah, I think it comes in at under two trillion, and that's what Jay, Jay, I believe, said last week. So there seems to be something of an emerging politics guys consensus on this. So, yeah, you know, how often do we all agree, right? So the fact that we, I mean, it must be true. <laughs> There you go. Absolutely. Well, before we uh, turn over and kind of change our attention to what's been going on with Facebook and with uh, uh, the whistleblower in Congress, we're going to take a brief break and have a word from our sponsors. Well, welcome back to the politics, guys. Thank you for being with us. Um, so, Mike, this week, this is this is really kind of my area. This is what I'm always curious about is social media and politics. And Tuesday, uh, we have Francis Hugen uh, come to the Senate floor to report on, snitch on, I'm not sure what the right uh, term here is, Facebook. And this follows numerous reports from the Wall Street Journal of some pretty poor behavior at best from Facebook. Uh, what she reported uh, to lawmakers was that Facebook is pushing products that knowingly harm children and young adults and make some explicit comparisons to the tobacco industry. Now, that's also uh, a neat comparison in part because I noticed a few weeks ago that has been something that scholars have been talking about for some time, especially when it comes to some of Facebook's public responses where they compared them side by side with what had happened in the past with the tobacco industry. As for the Wall Street Journal, despite Facebook promising to release more information in the wake and, and arguing that what had been coming out was false or at least maybe not put into the proper context, uh, all Facebook to the date has done is publish some slide decks on their research. They haven't actually released any of the research of the data to get hands on. So, oh, I know. Isn't it crazy? Uh, and, you know, and, and something I want to include here is, you know, we, we talk about this as, as scholars can, but you know, for me, and this might not be the same way, but I, I think maybe listeners should think anytime that you don't allow 
independent research or to let your data come out, that is when all of your, you know, all of your researcher tentacles should emerge from the back of your brain and be like, what is going on here? Um, you know, I'll even kind of share a personal story. A lot of my early research uh, dealing with presidential politics and communication uh, surrounded social media, but I wasn't able to continue a lot of it uh, in part because Facebook, Twitter, and other sites began restricting the access to their information to the point where today, for example, you know, there's really no way to conduct uh, any kind of research on what's happening on Facebook, uh, as and, and even doing so can put you into potential legal jeopardy. Uh, and, and that was always kind of sad, but it, it me I understand what Facebook is doing. They're you know manipulating things. So, but to get back to what's happening this particular week. Um, one of the big things to come out during the reports to Congress is how Facebook specifically manipulates your news feed to produce engagement. Even, and this is what's kind of key here, when that's harmful to behavior. So for example, uh, it will prioritize bad information because that bad information will rally you up and get you to interact with that information in a way that you wouldn't have, say, you know, like my uh, daughter's picture or something. This, uh, additionally, both from uh, uh, the reports to Congress and from the Wall Street Journal, we have looking at Instagram's effect on young girls, where uh, Instagram itself had research suggesting that they were harming uh, young girls, which, as a matter of fact, recently led the company to pull products specifically designed for children. An Instagram for kids is what that would have going to be called. Facebook, we've also learned uh, from the reports to Congress, was internally was very deeply worried that January 6 was its problem and that, that their platform was one of the primary reasons uh, for the ability of individuals to get together and do this. Um, so we've got a lot going on here. So, 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 Mike, I know this isn't always quite your area, but what does this say to you? And, you know, we continue to see both sides of the aisle want to have different kinds of regulations of social media, but for very different kinds of reasons. And then we get this bomb kind of dropped on us. Those of us who are paying attention, maybe it's not as surprising, but nevertheless, a bomb. What do you think happens from here? Well, I guess my initial response is this is about as surprising as someone saying to me, you know, my dog, my dog likes hamburger. Really? <laughs> oh, this is just astonishing. Um, that's I mean, does anyone not know this? Does anyone who's paying even even halfway paying attention not know that in in uh, in uh, Hagen's words that Facebook's products harm children, stoke division and weaken our democracy? Come on. Of course they do. And of course, Facebook is going to be bury any data that demonstrates that, that, that supports that view. They're not going to share that. They don't have a legal obligation to do that. So they're not. I mean, that to me, I, in a way, in a weird way, I don't even really blame Facebook. I mean, they're acting within the law as far as we know. And this, this idea that corporate entities will say, you know what, we could make a lot of money here, but let's not do that for social corporate social responsibility reasons uh, that's just if you think that happens on any on any widespread basis you're living in a delusional world and and so this to me is well no kidding and, and we get these ridiculous messages from people like uh, senator markey you know said that stood up i don't know if he stood up maybe he stood up he should have here's my message from mark zuckerberg your time of invading our privacy promoting toxic content and preying on our children and teens is over and my first thought was no it's not <laughs> this is not 
What I just, they just the whole thing just makes me number one roll my eyes and number two make me sick. At the same time, I guess I'm retching as I roll my eyes at all of this. That's kind of my response to it. So, I mean, one of the questions here that I think emerges is is that for those who are paying attention, uh, you know, I don't think this is surprising. Like it's it's the dog to the hamburger. Uh, but I would yeah. say that there is evidence to suggest that I don't know how widespread that knowledge is among all users. For example, even here uh, at OC, I have had students do a variety of different kinds of low-level researches, of course. Uh, but the the basic amount of knowledge of, say, even how your news feed is presented in front of you is not maybe as wide widely known as I would have anticipated. And this is in part due, I think, to a gap. We have this expectation that younger people are particularly technology savvy, but what really they are is they're just technology they, they kind of have a comfortableness with it being yeah. around. It's not that they're savvy about its use or it, its underlying functions. And so, you know, in, in that light, I'm not sure, you know, when you say that this is, I mean, for you, for me, and for other people who pay attention, so a lot, probably a lot of people listening to the show, it's probably not surprising. I'm not sure, though, if it's, is, if, if it's so much like the dog and the hamburger for the wider population. What do you think about that? Well, I'll even I'll just assume that I'm completely wrong and you are completely right about that that point that for most people, it's not like that. I still I guess my larger question or response to that is sort of a so what, because I don't think in the end that that people who aren't in that very small, engaged, politically engaged minority really care too much about the concept of democracy or the broader concept of harming our children or stoking division. What they care about and, and what what they what matters to them is here is this thing and I I get pleasure from using it. It is a part of my life, whether that's a, a, a good pleasure or a bad addictive pleasure, which you and I, I think probably to an extent agree that it is. I don't think it matters even if everyone were somehow made to realize that their privacy and their feeds are being manipulated and this on some meta level is bad for democracy, I think people would say, ah, yeah, it's fine. I don't care. Well, what does that then tell us, though? I mean, so since we're going to go down into the depths of despair doomed, together. Just doomed. Yeah, basically, we're, we're, we're going down. There's a, uh, we've hit the iceberg. The ship is sinking. And, you know, we're worried about replacing the towel racks on the, you know, and, and uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, I think so, going there, on. So, so there really is no positive. So one of, the, one of the questions I was going to have, so I'm just going to throw it out right here, is, I mean, so is there, oftentimes when we have new technologies come down the pike, there's a period of worrying about how they're going to be affected, the kind of early on uh, negative effects, and then they kind of settle into some kind of institutional. I'm thinking about a lot of people's thoughts about, for example, what would happen with uh, radio and then television, right? Uh, sure. But of yeah. course, I know that, you know, both of us maybe take a slightly harder view, right? I mean, we think back to like uh, uh, Postman's work, entertaining ourselves to, get, to death, and we laugh because he didn't realize we'd be car- they'd be carrying it around in our pockets. Is there any, is there any hope here that we can institutionalize this kind of thing in a positive way or to have guardrails on it that allow democracy to continue to thrive in a world in which you don't obviously think anyone's really going to stand up and stop Facebook wholesale or or whatever that, you know, again, we'll we'll sound like we're talking about old platforms in 10 years, but you, you get the point there. 
Yeah. Well, I'd like to think so, but there's some some points for people to keep in mind. You know, Facebook is the fifth largest American company based on market cap. All right, it's it's worth almost a trillion dollars, and one through four are the you know the four standard tech companies, right? Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and right now in 2020. Facebook spent almost $20 million on lobbying. Only five organizations spent more. And between in the last two years, Facebook increased their lobbying expenditures by around 56%. What they're spending is a ton, and they could very, very easily open the floodgates and spend orders of magnitude more than that. And that's why I think that Ed Markey and whatnot can talk, and, and the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal can write about bipartisan consensus. But the best thing that's going to happen, I think, that we can reasonably expect is what Facebook is calling for. They're calling for you know revisions to the CDA and, and, and so forth, but it's going to be window dressing. It's going to be the appearance of a fix that allows them to continue on with their business model, which is awesome for Facebook and disastrous for American democracy. So then on that vein, I'm going to ask kind of one more question here, Mike. Yeah. Given that we, one of the things that Facebook internally was so worried about, and you know, you're talking about this disastrous to democracy, what do you think about that potential connection between Facebook and January 6th? Well, you know, I think there absolutely is a connection, and certainly Facebook and other social media made it easy. I mean, it makes it makes it easier for people to find each other and organized and like-minded people to get together. And whether that's, you know, the cat lovers of the greater Peoria region or people who think that <laughs> hang Mike Pence is a great, is a great motto. You know, I mean, it, it, hey, I'm, I'm so sorry. where did you get the cat lovers? <laughs> I, you, you didn't even miss a beat. It was like you were waiting for a question. Your skin, wasn't it? I, know, I don't know. It just popped into my head. That's a weird sort of thing. I don't know. It's a strange time of day. I'm feeling odd. Maybe uh, I'm off. No, you were not. That that was the most on you have ever been. Like, I mean, there wasn't even a pause, sir. There was. I did not even write that out. No, but but, you know, I got to say, in terms of if if Congress were serious about this, if they could somehow overcome the great lobbying might of Facebook and you know, and, and associated social media companies do the same thing on a on kind of a lower level. I think what they do, and I'm going to get on my soapbox, I've talked about this before, a, a real, what a real change would look like would be, would be as Facebook wants, revising Section 230 of the CDA, but it would be revising it to classify any service that makes editorial decisions about who gets what content, what content gets promoted, aside from first in, first posted, you know, you know what I'm saying? Twitter, Twitter, yeah. And they don't get that liability protection. And and that would mean like, for instance, Reddit would be fine because Reddit is just a user, you know, a, a user run. You don't put posts don't pop up or down. It's all based on user votes. And I, I think that would be fine. But what Facebook is doing is completely within the law. And unless there's a really fundamental change made to that, that legal structure, they're going to keep on doing it. And while I hope I'm wrong, more than anything, except for maybe climate change, I hope I'm wrong about the dysfunction of government, because I think this is only second to climate change in a lot of ways in terms of my portents of doom. I I just don't see a lot of reason to be optimistic, but maybe I'll look back in a year and, and say, and I hope so, mea culpa, I, I, I was totally wrong. And that would be, I would be so happy to do that. I've often thought, you know, I, I agree with you that that would be one mechanism to change things. 
uh, and I agree with you, the likelihood that's going to happen is low. But I've often wondered if there couldn't be space, again, it, it would still be unlikely, but maybe more space to change legislation as it regards uh, data collection to prevent the, in other words, if you can, if you can prevent the idea that you're going to uh, provide services through this kind of manipulation via data collection, in, in short, you can't have platforms that can exchange services for data. And if in some ways you could end that as, as a legal matter, you would then destroy the potential business model to want to manipulate those kinds of sources the way we see, or that presentation yeah. of information the way we kind of see. And, and again, I don't think since it's not as straightforward, if maybe that could be a, a, a more likely scenario, because it could be tied into other things as we already know, not that we've talked about this here, but just the, you know, your, your location and GPS data ought to be private to you. And, and by, by making that more private, you could potentially, uh, alter the business models of Facebook. But again, you're right. The likelihood of those are low when you have those stakeholders. I imagine the lobbying campaign already, you know, Congress wants to take away free Facebook, right? Wants to make you pay for service we're giving you for free and i think what would happen is it's it well we'll make it uh we'll make it a more a more clear opt-in option thing and then the the big the big choice box will be you can either pay twenty dollars a month for facebook or get it for free as long as you agree to the uh, as long as you agree to your information being shared and you know what the vast majority of people will do well no there, we do have a little bit of data on that in the terms of what's happened recently with apple and your ability uh companies now that are going to track have to pop that up and they can put it however they want, but they have to pop that up to let you know and you have to be able to opt in. Sure. And the answer we know is even when you think it's going to end the service, I mean, they have some pretty dire, like if you don't say yes, this won't exist. It is, there is barely a 2% opt-in on, app, uh, uh, on iOS on the newest versions. That's not what I would have expected to be honest, uh, uh, Mike, but, but it does suggest potentially that people weirdly would be willing on some cases to vote against the free unless they just don't really believe the warning. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. But I, but I will point out that that model is not that, that, the uh, way of doing business is not central to Apple's business model in the way oh, it is. No, I was thinking like even for the apps, you know, the apps get to pop up and say, yeah. hey, if you, you know, yeah. by clicking no, you're going to kill us. Uh, as a matter of fact, Facebook yeah. is one of the ones who had that just kind of dire set of <laughs> uh, uh, warnings about the tracking. But you're right. Of course, Apple is able to kind of take that. I'm not trying to suggest I know I'm at, listen, I'm an Apple fan. We all know that in this case, though, I wasn't trying to give him a pass. I was just suggesting some data. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, and so I hope you're right about that. I hope that these are signs we can we can point to and say that maybe people do uh, care enough about privacy and manipulation. But but I also think on the other side of this is that what maybe people do care about this. But I think also that people love having their beliefs confirmed and strengthened. And so the sort of thing there are two there may be two pieces of this. There's the there's the manipulation and privacy piece, but there's also the kind of partisan echo chamber sort of piece. And that I think that's pretty clear that most people who are at all interested in politics are interested in that sort of thing. You know, just a couple of weeks ago on, on the podcast, right, Jay and I were talking about this and I said, you know, take a look at the list of the top podcasts on Apple Podcasts. They're all far left, far right, far right echo chamber sort of things because people love that stuff. We are we are here, you and I and m- most all politics guys, listeners, except for the small majority, my, my, small majority, small minority who like hate listen for, what, for one of our hosts or not. I'm, you know, 
know, we're we're not normal, and and I mean that as a compliment, right? But I, that's not how most Americans are, and that's unfortunate. But I think that's just a reality of it. Well, I mean, and there's a lot of truth there. I mean, I can't when you say that, all I can think of is Joe Rogan, and uh, it's true. It's true. Well, I think what we should do here is probably might take a break for a minute and allow our sponsors to have a moment. And then when we come back, uh, we'll talk about the Texas abortion injunction. Well, welcome back to The Politics, guys. Thanks for listening through the break. Uh, Mike, before we had gotten done, we were talking about and thinking about Facebook, and now we're going to kind of pivot and move in a different direction. We're going to be chatting about uh, Texas because we had some pretty big news coming out of Texas. The U.S. District Court uh, and the the, uh, uh, justice specifically, Robert Pittman, granted a temporary stay from Texas law SB8. That is the law that blocked abortions in Texas by placing a $10,000 bounty for anyone who reported an abortion over six weeks. And this is actually something that uh, Mike, you and myself and Kristen on our three-person show a number of weeks ago got to take on when it first happened. uh, And things didn't go maybe exactly as we planned at the Supreme Court. But nevertheless, the Supreme Court had earlierly, uh, earlier declined to intervene. But now the DOJ has brought a suit and the court has declared that using this weird method of enforcement, that is letting private citizens uh, sue effectively for bounties, doesn't allow it to bypass constitutional words. Or in the, in the actual written opinion of Judge Pittman, quote, a person's rights under the Constitution to choose to obtain an abortion prior to fetal viability is well established. Fully aware that depriving its citizens of this right by direct state action would be flagrantly unconstitutional, the state contrived an unprecedented and transparent statutory scheme to do just that, end quote. So I think now the question really becomes, what happens next? Texas has already appealed this uh, to the uh, circuit court. Uh, so what does this mean? I mean, again, I know that we've talked on the three-person show about kind of our feelings on this. And I think this is another one of those areas where we, we had kind of some broad agreement about uh, finding this particular enforcement mechanism to be distasteful. Uh, but the Supreme Court, clearly, it was at least willing to not put the stay on it. Uh, It's now only since at the district court level with this new suit from the DOJ, which lends us to wonder, well, what happens then is this inevitably makes its way back up to the Supreme Court in this slightly different mechanism or this slightly different case. Excuse me. Well, I got to say, you know, the uh, the crafters of SBA, they were they were clever clever individuals because there's a provision in the law saying that if in fact there is, uh, it is temporarily suspended for an order just like this one, that anyone who would have been able, would been liable for a lawsuit under it can be sued retroactively uh, while for, you know, services, abortion services they provided while the law wasn't in effect. So, I mean, what well, this this was this was well crafted for its intended purpose. They knew the chilling effect it would have, even if at some point it is declared unconstitutional. It would stop, or not, it would certainly staunch what they see as the horrific flow of abortions for an extended period of time. And that's you know it seems to be exactly what is happening. And some people think that's wonderful, and some people are outraged at that sort of thing. And I mean, it seems to me, I don't know what's going to happen at the Fifth Circuit. I do know it's one of the most conservative circuit courts in the federal court system. Uh, right now, of the 17 active judges, 
12 were appointed by Republicans, including six Trump appointees. So it kind of in part depends on what, you know, what three judge panel hears that. But uh, in, in the end, I think that the Supreme Court is, was hoping that they would be able to sort of punt on this issue until until they could either a lower court could decide it and they could decide not to hear it or until they could hear the Mississippi law, which is a different law, which was decided in a much more, uh, or sorry, was passed in a much more kind of traditional way, not this weird vigilante justice enforcement mechanism that they're going to be uh, hearing that case in their new term and deciding on that. And and maybe they have it in mind that, well, we're going to open the floodgates, essentially end Roe versus Wade without necessarily flat out declaring it unconstitutional, which which I believe Ken thinks would be what's going to happen. And I, I tend to agree with Ken on that. So, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, there's no way that this is constitutional under current Roe versus Wade and other current precedents, but those precedents may, might not be around after, well, I think the court hears the Mississippi case, I believe in November, December, want to say. So it's going to be the biggest case of the term. So that will that decision will probably come out in June of 2022. So that would be my kind of the date I would be looking at for that. So you think in the meantime, because the Mississippi case is going to be the more the more important case that this might effectively, hey, yeah, I, stay or no stay, it doesn't I, really matter. It's, it's hard for me to see how the uh, how the Fifth Circuit legitimately overturns this this stay from from Judge Pittman. I just don't I mean, just given the precedent, maybe they go back to using the the five members in the majority on the Supreme Court, their argument saying that, well, this is just new and we want to let it play out. Basically, maybe they look at the standing issue because Texas argued that the federal government just doesn't have standing because the federal government hasn't suffered a direct harm. Now, the Justice Department has argued that its standing comes from the law's violation of the Constitution's Supremacy Clause. But maybe the Fifth Circuit says, no, that's we don't see it that way. And in which case, then you have to kind of wait for and there have been some individuals who do have standing who I believe have filed suits. So maybe you wait for those cases to play out. And, and again, I, I thought that the end game for Texas for, for a while now is whether this is ultimately upheld at the Supreme Court or not, it means that there are going to be fewer abortions after six weeks that are performed, which again is like 85, 90 percent of all abortions. And so they're getting what they want out of this law. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's that's clever bill crafting. So, you know, one of the things that makes me think as we've continued, this has obviously been on the forefront. It's going to be continued to be an issue as we move forward. And that is, you know, as a country, one of the things that we have just not found agreement on is some place to decide what we want to think about in terms of what is or isn't a person. <laughs> and it seems to me that we, because we keep doing it at this, we both want to have a, sta a national standard, but at the same time want states to take up these inst the individual cases that we're going to continue to have issues like Texas. Uh, in, is, is it time for Congress to act? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I guess Congress could pass could pass legislation, uh, but but I, I 
I, I agree with you on the fundamental point, right? That it all it all get it all gets down to personhood. But but even then, if you say, well, it's a slippery it's a slippery slope, right? It's not a. I think fetal viability is a good, basically good demarcation line between weighing the rights of a woman to do what she wants with her own body and the rights of a state in protecting uh, uh, protecting life. And so it seems to me that the most logical place to draw that line is where the court did it back in 1973 is you're, you're a person when you can survive outside the womb. But at the same time, I think that the state has a non-zero interest in preserving potential life. I, I get that. But does that mean then that there's a law against it that under those grounds, depending on how far you want to take it back, then there should be a law against masturbation, right? I mean, because yeah. there you go. That's your life. Well, and that's, I'll you know, tell you, that, that's been my problem. You know, I am probably more conservative on this one um, than – I'm definitely more conservative than, say, Ken. I, you know, again, this is not one we've talked about. Uh, but but for me, and I understand you. You know, you talk about that slippery slope, and it and it, and it <laughs> depending on which direction of the mountain you're on, you're slipping a different direction. <laughs> um, and it, it's what 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 I think becomes particularly difficult here is I've often kind of thought is is that the court, because of the circumstance it's in, and you know, you're you're talking about viability. Is and again, viability has shifted a little bit as time has gone on, and that too means that. We have an, you know, a potential issue now. Maybe it's more stable today than it ever has been. Maybe it's not going to change in a significant way anymore. Um, but I guess you know, you just—it's it, hard to make those kinds of predictions forever. But yeah, it, it, kind of, it almost feels a little bit like that sense of, you know, there's there's this, we're shooting at this, uh, you know, we're shooting at this wall, and we're we're trying to figure out if there's anybody behind it. So right, you know, when does your right to to exercise your right to shoot interfere with the potentiality that somebody's behind the wall? And 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 and, and it's a it's a really difficult one for me because on the one hand I, um, you know, kind of being libertarian sympathetic, I recognize that a woman has a right to do things with her body. And, and, and especially as a man, I have to be careful in, you know, how I'm arguing about that, uh, because, you know, that's not something that can happen to me personally. And so I think anytime you're talking about a right that doesn't affect you, uh, you need to be particularly careful and give the other person a lot of leeway in, you know, in, in, in what's going to happen to them. Um, but then at the same time, we have this uh, potential person and I, and for me personally, it's really difficult, you know, to think about, well, is it viability? And then, and at what point like weird, it's, it's, it's hard. And I think one of the things that I've, I particularly hate about um, this law is, is instead of having to deal with the hardness, in, in, instead of having to deal with the complexity and the frustration there, instead, we just use this weird method to try to bypass that whole difficult oh, conversation. I, yeah, I, I, I agree. And and I think, you know, when you when you asked, is it time for <clears throat> Congress to act? I was I, I it kind of brought me up short because I feel like this is an issue of a, of a fundamental right. And so I guess I would say that I don't feel so much that Congress should act through legislation, but I feel that this particular 
right to this particular privacy right needs well could perhaps be beneficially uh, explained, uh, be laid out more clearly in the Constitution as a fundamental right. Now, I don't know what that would look like, but that would I think that would address the issue of the Supreme of nine justices just deciding where this line is. I would much prefer it, and as I do for almost any issue, when there is constitutional ambiguity, because as you know and as listeners know, there is no specifically listed right to privacy in the Constitution. It's found in all the sorts penumbra. of different... <laughs> exactly. And, and we laugh at that term, but we also, in a way, know that is true because we we believe that a right to privacy from government interference with our, with our persons is a fundamental right. And so I certainly would not be adverse to some sort of a privacy amendment being in the Constitution, and that could that could cover not just a person, but a person's well personal data. Getting to the Facebook and other issues, because pretty clearly this privacy right issue was not something that the framers thought of in the same way that we do for for a lot of reasons, many of them technological. And you know, the Constitution was designed to be updated and changed and modified with the times. And the framers certainly thought that would happen. But we basically, th- that that process has ground to a halt. And you have these people holding up their pocket constitutions like they're Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and saying, well, this is it, guys, you know, and, and this ignorance of history and what and what the framers expected, I think, is, you know, is problematic. I, I, I deeply agree on that front. So when I was talking about Congress, that is precisely what I was talking about. Oh, okay. I yeah. have always found the, and you know, again, I, this is where Ken might disagree with me. I have always found the privacy penumbra, penumbra issue to be a, a self, a partially self-created issue because of an unwillingness of justices, I think, to take the Tenth Amendment seriously uh, to include ah. more items. And, and this is where I think uh, a conservative view uh, of the Constitution would have been right. There are a number of rights like privacy. And I think the idea was in the Tenth Amendment, what anti-federalists were trying to get at was Things will change more rapidly than we're going to be always having constitutional amendments. What do we do about that? Anti-Federalists were worried precisely about that issue. And so to pass the Constitution, we get the Tenth Amendment. Um, but what, what Supreme Court justices have turned the Tenth Amendment into, in, into the words of Sandra Day O'Connor, a truism, meaning anything we don't give to the national government uh, is it reserves. But I, I think right here is in a great example of where we can have people rights. But the fact that we haven't done it that way, okay, here's here we are. And on that front, I deeply agree what? with you, Mike. We need to add... I, this idea that we couldn't have additional rights come via the the Constitution, that somehow uh, modifying that is is terrible. And I think part of that Moses coming down from above, I've often thought that had the first Congress been willing, rather than stapling amendments onto the bottom, said we're actually going to rewrite the Constitution, that we might have been a little bit more psychologically willing to say this is a work in progress, not the thing that we're constantly stapling to the bottom. I've often wondered historically if that wasn't a a mistake, although I don't think it was one maybe that would have been recognized at that moment. Yeah. 
You know, also you mentioned the Tenth Amendment. I want to I want to give a shout out to the the most the most forgotten amendment, sort of the middle <laughs> child, if you will, uh, of of the Constitution, the Ninth Amendment. But most people, you go jump right from eight to ten, right? And then there's everything after that. But well, and by I, most people, give, you mean the twenty who actually could list them all. Yeah, exactly. But go ahead. Yeah, exactly. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the whole sucker out because it's pretty short. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now, that's a pretty big catch-all, right? I mean, it's, hey, there are these rights, other rights, just other. This is another category, right? Uh, rights retained by the people, and we're not saying people don't have these rights. So what are they? Well, you could pretty much pour whatever you want into that. And the Ninth Amendment, I think, has sort of famously just been, everyone keeps away from it because it's so vague. It's like, what the hell does that mean? I don't know, but there are <laughs> these rights, apparently. People retain them. We don't know what they are, but damn it, we retain these rights, you know? So there it is. Maybe we need to put some some meat on the on the bones and the outline of that Ninth Amendment and, and specifically talk about the rights that people retain, like I would argue most fundamentally uh, is, you know, is the right to privacy. Maybe that could be the thing we do, uh, uh, Mike. Maybe we have a Ninth Amendment amendment uh, movement. <laughs> 9A, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, well, I mean, we, we have solved all of the world's problems as usual you know, in an hour, Mike, but no one is going to listen. Yeah, well, you know, I think I think it's it's we need to get we need to get the right people to listen, right? So I know that I know that listeners appreciate and sometimes they disagree and they let us know that on on Discord or, or Facebook or the or the Reddit group, you know. But uh, you know, I, I think sometimes we can have these conversations, and I'm sure this happens to you in the classroom. Is is there's this feeling of like, well. What are we doing here then? The forces arrayed against uh, us, you know, the forces of good and light and, and wonderfulness seem to be so vast. But but I think it's important to to retain at least a sense of optimism and realize that, you know, social movements and how change happens is it, it, it tends to you know bubble up and it takes time and effort. And one person tells another person and, and if, from a core of committed people, you can have a movement. And while most movements fail, not all of them do, and it's worth it's worth engaging in the fight, which is why we do what we do. I love you say that, but it, it, it's so interesting how you have you kind of uh, th- uh, 180 there from like you know, the, the, the democracy is coming to a very end. But yeah, yeah it's <laughs> a bipolar. bipolar <laughs> well, you know, I, again, I, I wouldn't be doing this, right? I wouldn't be a political scientist. We wouldn't be doing this show if I didn't have some belief that this mattered. And sometimes it can just be hard because we're just relentlessly bombarded with either I feel like either cynicism or radical extremism extremism on both sides. And so you have the utopians on one side screaming about their perfect world. And then you have the cynics on the other side screaming, we're all doomed. And those are the people who, well, who are promoted in the uh, in the Facebook feeds. Right. And so I, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that there are a lot of people who aren't like that. And if if people of people of good heart and who are willing to put in the time and effort band together and and kind of have that continuous effort that sometimes good things can happen and i if i didn't believe that then i guess i would just you know quit the podcast and go live in the mountains with my wife and dogs you know but not, Listen, not I, today I, I still like the idea of the mountains but i did on add on that and we'll need to finish up is to say that i think sometimes you know especially for listeners or others and you think you know, say, we can band together we can do this that seems overwhelming and where do you start and so uh 
uh, one bit of maybe pragmatic suggestion I have here, and this comes, and again, I want to make it explicit, right? Not everyone is going to potentially share this particular kind of background, but that's what we do on the on the show. But this comes from my Christian ethos, this idea that we can do something local and we can we can love our neighbor in a really specific kind of way. And that can be the beginning of some really incredible changes and be the catalyst for moves. So, you know, if you're having that day where you just think that democracy is dying, uh, then I highly recommend that, that you join me. You, you know, you walk to work, you whatever, and you pick up a few pieces of trash or you help one of the people along the way that you've seen all the time and you haven't and make that something really specific. And I think that's the, the true beginning of, uh, of movements that have power as they move forward. And I think that's part of the what makes me uh, uh, think about how my my Christianness can interact in a positive way in my community. And that can be the beginning for that, even when things seem to be despairing at a larger level. Yeah, and if nothing else, there's less trash on your tree lawn or what have you, so there you go. <laughs> exactly. Hey, that's something. Well, Ken, I just want to thank oh, – Ken, oh, my goodness. Mike, I just want to thank you doing the show with me. I know that we didn't have Ken here today, um, but it's always fun to get to do it with you as well. Absolutely. So, listeners, there's a bunch of things that Mike and I did not get to on this show. So if you if you want to be part of that, you can become a, a, a supporter of the politics, guys. And, you know, Mike and I, we've been talking about this. We need your support to make these kinds of things work. Our love for this only goes so far. So far. Uh, and so one, by becoming a supporter, you can get access to our bonus show. And now it's not available on Wednesday anymore. You get that right now as you're listening listening to this show, you'll have access almost immediately to the bonus show. And in this, Mike and I, we're going to take a look at a bunch of the stuff we didn't get to. We're going to talk about the Pandora Papers. We're going to talk about some developments going on between uh, Taiwan and China and how it involves the United States. We're going to talk about Idaho and Lieutenant Governor. So if you want to get in on all of that, you can become a supporter of the show. There's also other ad, uh, advantages of becoming a supporter of the show. We have things like the Discord channel. Uh, you can chat with myself and with uh, Mike and, and sometimes Ken. Uh, and uh, you can gain access to that with the supporter show. Now, if you're in a position where you can't do this, and this is one of the cool things about what we do with the show, you can actually reach out to Mike uh, at Mike at politicsguys.com and let him know, and he can still make the bonus show available to you. But if you want to become a supporter of the show or just check out the other cool benefits of being a supporter of the politics guys, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can go to our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Again, that's our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys. So join, I guess next week it's going to be uh, you and Jay Mike uh, again. By, uh, um, and then, or if you want to hear more of me and uh, uh, Mike, for right now, head to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkinson, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you join us next time.